Hello. This is the house on Valencia Street, and I'll be your host. I use explicit language. Topics of conversation will include ghosts and the paranormal and psychic ability. I also discuss the fact that I am an incest and rape survivor, and I talk about it sometimes on the podcast. Other topics that will be bantied about, domestic violence, kink, BDSM, uh, recovery, therapy, LGBTQIA, therapy, recovery, willful education, um, yeah, that's some stuff. Uh, mm, cultural acceptance of violence against women, uh, race, gender, and socioeconomic demographic class bias, the permission structures that are in place that allow these types of disparities to occur, and everybody's being just fine with it. And I'm not, so I'm talking about it. Uh, let's see what else. <laughs> My ancestors. My mother, Darlene, who was a kick-ass warrior babe, Valkyrie, and I love. I don't know if she'd describe herself that way, but in my heart, that's how I see her. She'd probably see herself in a more genteel, shy manner. Although, I know what that woman's made of. And she's a kick-ass warrior babe to me, so I'm still talking about her. Uh, let's see. My grandma, Mildred. Uh, yeah. Taught me how to crochet. She was also left-handed, that one. <laughs> like me. Some of the topics that I've mentioned here might be triggering for you, and I need you to use your discernment, okay? So, uh, if mental health stuff is kicking up for you, please talk to a licensed board certified therapist, someone who's educated enough to give you some context clues and maybe give you some resources. If the first one doesn't fit, go to a second or a third therapist. You don't need to go to just one. And therapists can be incredibly powerful and healing, and therapists can be incredibly destructive. I've mentioned on the podcast before that uh, in my early 2021-year-old 20, life, I ended up with a therapist through couples counseling while I was engaged who was the mother of a famous rock star from Oregon. And uh, that famous rock star talked about being abused by this person. And a lot of her punk rock rage music came from the abuse she received from her mother, the therapist. I met this woman about two, three years out of my ther uh, out of foster care. And she came attacked me when I discussed my sexual abuse. That set me back about four years. So therapists can be really powerful and helpful. And like the person that helped me get through my gambling addiction, which essentially was me missing my mother because she died. <laughs> After I got therapy for the, the, the grief of my mama's death, I didn't need to gamble anymore. My compulsion went away. That was a really amazing therapist that helped me with that. And that was 11, 12 years ago, right? The rock star mama therapist that was destructive as hell. That was 30, 40 years ago, well, 30 years ago. So in conclusion, a therapist can be a real helpful person and you're, you're worth someone talking to that you're comfortable with who makes you feel, take care of your mental health. If you don't have money for a therapist, there's a couple 1-800 numbers in my notes. You can go ahead and give them a call. If it's the middle of the night and you got flashbacks, I get those too. Yeah. I've got a website you can check out. It's called anchor.fm forward slash MoMA. You can download my podcast, listen to the notes. You can donate there if you'd like as well. That'd be nice too. I think I covered the basics. Yeah. Basis. Yeah. Okay. Let's get in. I'm walking into the house on Valencia Street. Hello. <laughs> oh, it is good to be home. Mm. Even if it's a fucked up poltergeistic healing abused but recognizing it now perspective. <laughs>
we all express love and walk love and life the way that we do. Yeah, this is one of my ways. Okay. We bring to you today, uh, I'm trying to figure out, I've already tried to record this a time or two and I restarted and restarted. There's about 20 data points I want to get in, but I think I'm going to try to come from my heart and make it enjoyable this time. I will tend to want to do it right. I'm a perfectionist and I'm going to pause. There's a social worker named Tihan. His last name's Tihan. He's on YouTube. I heard him say that um, when you see a perfectionist adult, when you see a person who's a perfectionist or a bit hypervigilant, chances are they were a neglected child. A lot of times perfectionism is a compensation for being neglected and a a feeling that you want to be perfect so you're lovable, you know, because you're being neglected, right? So, So perfectionism, if you see that in somebody, sometimes it's just the way they think, but sometimes it's also neglect and it's a just a trait that carried through, you know. Also, it's satisfying to make things perfect or close to perfect, you know. When I'd win the spelling bees, you know, it was it was there was a satisfaction to knowing those structures not because I wanted to be better than anyone, but because I wanted to be completely married to them. There was something about the process of the data that was interesting and felt good to me. Yeah. Which is why I guess I had the IT career and I guess that's why I'm doing prompt engineering and machine learning AI work right now. So uh, for a living. So, um, but I digress. Let's get back to the, where, why we're here today. Last week or two, I've been binging on Tales of the City from 1993 by Armistead Maupin. I read the books 30 years ago. I lathered it and slathered it all over me um, back then when I was coming out in my sexual orientation. And it felt so good to hear my story kind of talked about, you know, as an LGBTQIA person. A lot of people, if they're a mature person, Armistead Maupin's probably going to be someone they know. Yeah. One way I know that writing is a good quality, and I, you know, writing was how I saved myself, one of the ways I saved myself in Walla Walla. Um, at Waha, I was recognized for my writing. I was writing this intense poetry, and I submitted it for extra credit for some English classes because I was just 101 English. And they recognized I was talented and I was intelligent. So I got jacked up from 101 English to AP English, and I was getting college credit for my English work. But I didn't know what I, uh, I didn't know what a hyperbole was. I didn't know a lot of the language that the valedictorian who was sitting right next to me knew. I didn't have that background. They just knew I was a talented poet, you know. So I'd later go on to get a bachelor's in writing and a bachelor's in philosophy. Well, so. Um, something was happening there, something where I, I felt strong. And that's another reason why I, I have a fondness for Armistead Maupin, because as a writer, he is so gifted. <laughs> he just takes my breath away with his stillness. He just makes these gentle observations, and he leaves a little room for you to process it. You know, One thing, if you watch Tales of the City, okay, I'm going to start cheerleading here. If you watch the original Tales of the City, which you can get, uh, you can buy, purchase online. You can also find it on YouTube or Vimeo. There's a couple different locations, Hulu. Uh, go for the originals. There's a remake on Netflix. I didn't care for the remake on Netflix because I think they were trying to do too much with it kind of like what I, why I'm re-recording this episode is because I'm trying to stuff everything in and it's like I don't need to. I could just give you an image or two, right? So so this last week when I was swimming, you know, in Armistead Maupin and I was, <laughs> I was watching Further Tales of the City and there's that part at the end where the doctor and Mouse are cuddling and Mouse says, oh, there's a little hickey on your neck there. I didn't remember leaving that hickey on your neck. And I was watching that and I'd forgotten I'd forgotten about AIDS. 
I'd forgotten about AIDS and I had friends who die of AIDS. And just in that moment of magic and seeing these two guys that were just loving each other's hanging out, you know, they were LGBTQIA, just like me, but they just, oh, you know, that little hickey on your neck. And it's like, oh God, because if you know people who've had AIDS, those little melanomas and those little dark spots that get around their face, uh, those were last indicator. Usually if you saw those, that person wasn't long to live, you know, and, um, and maybe I need a further education, but back then, when we were losing people in Oregon from AIDS and I was going to the parties and trying to educate people because I'd befriended the human sexuality instructor and she connected me with a, they had an LGBTQ panel and it was the first time I'd ever seen LGBTQ people talking in a college class. You know, I was like, Oh my God, there's people like me and there's a thousand people. In, well, several hundred people in this room. I beelined for them. I remember taking that human sexuality class and I beelined straight for that professor and I beelined right for them. And I, they said, oh, we're getting together for coffee after the class. And I became long friends with that teacher and two or three people from that gay and lesbian panel. <laughs> then 10 years later, I was on gay and lesbian panels at the university as a bisexual person who was monogamous and celibate at the time as a representative of one flavor of sexuality. I'm really grateful for these people that were able to come into a place where it was kind of shy 20, 30, 40 years ago and say, I'm an LGBTQIA person. And being bisexual at that time, lesbians didn't like you because, well, okay, I'm making gross generalizations. A lot of times <clears throat> they'd be kind of hobby players. I think sometimes the lesbians would look at the, uh, the, the bisexual women, as, especially if they were in a couple, uh, they would use their couple privilege, their heterosexual couple privilege to you know, unicorn hunt. And um, I digress. There's a lot of stuff there, but I want to get to this article. So I'm digging through Armistead Maupin. And one way I know that your writing is good, and one way I know the story is sound and that I'm still thinking about it, is if I'm still researching you. If, I, if after I watch your movie or your book, I'm spending weeks researching you and digging around in articles, you've done something for my heart. Something's going on there. So today, while I was kind of swimming downstream, trying to figure out the vibe, I pulled up an article from The Guardian about Armistead Maupin and Rock Hudson. And there were two paragraphs in that article that kind of blew my mind and made me remember something about Walla Walla and coming out, and I wanted to share it. So here we go. After living at the house on Valencia Street and all my sisters going to college, Mama downsized and got a two-bedroom on Boyer Street in Walla Walla. So from about 13, 14, up until I walked into the um, adult and family services and asked for a, a home because I didn't want my stepdad to rape me, um, we stayed at Boyer Street. And then we moved to a final place with the creepy guy. Uh, was it husband number four? Yeah. Um, there were several, mom married several times, but again, um, she was a monogamous person and a faithful person. Um, the men that she was marrying to weren't necessarily. So um, I consider my mom to be an integrous person who is an honest person. And she did marry several times and she hated being judged about that. Although she was trying to find a home for her kids and she wanted stability and that was the way she was trying to do it, you know. We had this little place and honestly it was kind of nice. Uh, Valencia Street house was kind of spooky and weird and this place was smaller and at least there wasn't any funky weird spirits shaking around. Um, there was only one heater at the Boyer Street house. It was about 
the size of a front of a truck, you know, big. And if it was too hot and the heater was going and you get on your bare feet with your flannel nightgown, your feet would burn, you know. So you'd have to kind of stand and straddle like a three or four foot wide metal grate that was a huge metal grate that was only one metal grate heating the whole place. <laughs> a lot of good memories with our flannel nightgowns standing over this huge grate because we stand next to each other sometimes, mom and I, with our flannel nightgowns. <laughs> And we blow up like the Michelin man and you just, you stand over it and all the heat would go up your, 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 your nightgown and you just, it, whoop, you were just a big old bag of air. <laughs> the Michelin, it was so funny. We'd make fun of each other and laugh. Well, during one summer, uh, my sister, the French one came home from college. The French one had been dating a professor who was an atheist and an alcoholic he once found me so intelligent. He liked to study me English-wise. He was an English professor. And I remember in Boyer Street, he gave me 101 intro college English exams because they would do kind of a test to kind of measure where you were to get started. And he had me take the test and I was in ninth grade. And no, I was in eighth grade. Yeah, I was still in junior high. But he had hundreds of students in this class and I scored ninth out of several hundred students at WSU entry level English. And I, he was just coming home and vacationing with us and just, he was like, he was interested in my English skills. And so then he gave me this test and he's like, you're testing higher than over 90% of my class and you're in eighth grade. So <clears throat> that was kind of a, an experience I had there that was really validating to have a, a college English professor interested in my English aptitude. Thing was, he was kind of a creep. And then that English professor, uh, after we became mature adults, he said he wanted to sleep with me. She was pregnant. We all got together. And he and I were talking. He's like, you know, I'd like to sleep. And I was like, what? <laughs> so yet again, someone is going to be validating your intellect and then saying, hey, I want to fuck you. Because a lot of times that's what ends up happening with women, uh, you know, because we're objectified, you know, and, and I... I sat there and I go, it was such a good thing to have this person tell me I was so intelligent. And then to later go, hey, baby. I was like, you son of a... Anyway, I digress. But let's get back to Boy Street and our sexuality and this, this thing going on here. The Boy Street house was kind of a respite because in the back of the Boy Street house was this little six-foot sliver of dirt. And uh, it was neglected pretty much. There wasn't much going on there. And there was a metal fence about a four foot tall metal fence from the house behind us. Now there was a house behind us that was like uh, gray gardens. It was overgrown and maybe once was a majestic house, but now there was just this old single guy that lived back there with a chow dog. And there were rumors in the neighborhood that maybe him and his chow dog, uh, he was a weird guy. And there were, there were rumors that he might, him and his dog, there might be something going on. <laughs> I hate to say that. Oh, I'm actually saying it. But he just had a really strange vibe. And it was this, it was like he was friendly, but something was off. You know? And you're like, uh. But he never seemed to want to. He wasn't threatening with us. He, it, it, we didn't. Mm. There's a difference between the creepy, weird neighbor that's interested in you sexually and the creepy, weird neighbor that's just kind of living his life and doesn't really register you. He was more like that. Yeah. And, um. I would go back on that little sliver of dirt and I would write because the trees were overgrown. And yet again, I'm hiding in the brambles like I used to on Valencia Street house. Because a lot of times if you go into nature like that, um, if there's thorns and vines and things around it, other people aren't going to be drawn to that location. And maybe you've got some safety. 
So you've got this like natural defense of this kind of organic grown over location that's a throwaway piece of dirt that nobody's going to hang out on. And you're sitting in it going, this is Taj Mahal. Nobody's beating me. Nobody's raping me. Nobody's insulting me. <laughs> it's quiet. I have, I have a quiet here. I go back there and I ride all the time. And the French one came back from college and sat down with us one day and it was just she and I hanging out. She was so cool. I was so enamored because she was, she was exotic. She was having sex and she had pets and she was reading tarot cards and she was an atheist. And I didn't know many of those in Walla Walla. And, um, one day she pulled me aside and she said, I've got something I have to tell you. And, um, it's kind of serious and I'm not quite sure how to share it with you. I was about 15 and at the time, sure I was attracted to men and I had a lot of crushes on men. Uh, Mom was showing me kind of obsessive, uh, out of control polar because that's where she was. So I was emulating that and I would have really huge crushes. Uh, I could be quite obsessive with my crushes and I can look back now and have some patience with me as a child. I'm also a passionate person, so that's part of it too. My sister, the French one, she says, well, I need to tell you that um, I'm bisexual and that I'm attracted to men and women and that's my orientation sexually and I just need to share that with you. So my sister's sharing this with me and I've never heard of a bisexual. I'm 15. It's Walla Walla, you know, and my eyes grew wide because I've been writing I've been writing furiously about these sexual feelings that were coming up in me. I was just going through puberty and I was having dreams of these beautiful women wearing dresses kind of floating over me and I'd get all warm and attracted and think that their bodies were beautiful. And, you know, if Howard, the supervisor at the post office, who liked to beat my mom into the hospital and throw me downstairs where I still physically have scars for what he did, and the cops that kept coming to the house and turning around and walking away while she was beating her into the hospital again, because everybody was just fine with it. But he liked to have playboys laying around. And my best friend, uh, the bookish one that I went all the way through, he was a National Merit Honor Scholar. We were in AP English together, and uh, he was nearly autistic. He was antisocial. He didn't talk to people. People would always wonder if we were romantically involved and we weren't. And then they would always wonder what he was like. And I'd be like, he's an intelligent, crazy, wild man. You know, we'd be sitting there running around on the swing sets when we were kids growing up from the age of six on up. And, you know, we still occasionally every year or two ride each other. But we'd be quoting the Scarlet Pimpernel running around going, they seek him here. They seek him there. Those Frenchies seek him everywhere. <laughs> and we'd be making up stupid lyrics and Nobody knew that side of him, you know. His father, and they were bookish people, and they had glasses. He had every playboy there was. We'd go down to the basement, and he felt comfortable with a bunch of naked pictures of women all over the place. So, of course, if there's naked pictures all over the place and women are being objectified, and I'm 15, I, A, I'm sexually attracted to women, but B, culturally, why wouldn't you be? It's all over the place, right? So my sister's sharing with me that she's come to the understanding that she's sexually attracted to women. She's sexually attracted to men and she's coming out to me. And I'm 15 and I've been writing about this, but I didn't have anybody to talk to about it. So I stole her thunder, not meaning to. And she's like, I just need to tell you I'm coming out. And I said, well, that's me. I've been, what is that? But I, I'm bisexual. I be, and she goes, 
oh, honey, you don't have to take this on. It's, you don't have to do this to be cool. And I said, I've been writing about this in my diary. I've got proof. I've been, I'm attracted to women too. I didn't know that you could be bisexual. I, I was like, what? You know, and uh, she was looking at me like, this is supposed to be her moment, you know, trying to process this. And <laughs> her little virginal 15-year-old sister is saying, me too, right? So <clears throat> it was kind of a cumbersome coming out because turned out it was me too, right? As we would mature, um, she, we would move to Oregon and we would go, I'd go to school in Oregon and she'd find her husband here. And her husband was a conservative Christian and she started taking that on. And then there was the judging and the shaming that started. And then there was chastity rings for her teen daughters and her teen daughters bearing children at 15. And that was a long line that was going to set up for her change in her course. But when we come back to Oregon, and after she'd found her husband, and this is years later, they had a nice big house, and her husband was going to have inheritance coming soon. And she had a laundry room, and a washer and dryer, and a big room where her daughters stayed, and I helped them paint the walls pink because, well, their oldest daughter wanted it pink, so I helped paint the room for them. And I remember sitting there folding laundry with her in her fancy house, and she was talking about the woman who worked at the cash register in the grocery store at the small city next to the university city I was living in that she'd settled in. And they'd built their house, inspected out. I spent six months looking at samples of carpet and wallpaper and all kinds of crap and wall paint and these uh, signals of privilege, you know. And I remember she was talking to me about the crush that she had on the woman with the cash register while she was folding her laundry and uh, how she couldn't talk to anybody about it and how she shared that she was really bisexual and she couldn't talk to anybody about it. Her husband wouldn't let her talk about being gay or bisexual. And I can remember our dinners where we get together. For 15 years, I'd take the kids out for Halloween and when we'd have dinners, they'd be throwing things around and getting kids and the kids would go, that's so gay, that's so gay. And I'd stop. And I'd say, don't say that. That doesn't feel good. I don't want you saying that. Yeah. And then, you know, her husband would just look at him like he approved, but he wasn't going to say it. Right. And he was one of those, like the Stephen Colbert guy that puts his arm around the, the chicken or the, the black person and says, I have a, I can't be racist because I got a black friend. Stephen Colbert cultivated that character in his previous show. My brother-in-law was like that. <clears throat> I work with gay friends. I, I, I'm, not, I'm not homophobic. Yeah, he was homophobic. He wouldn't let his wife talk about her truthful sexual orientation. She was monogamous, right? So I had to sit there and suffer this. I had to suffer this closeted bullshit, okay? And I don't do that anymore, you know, but I did because I loved her. And I didn't have a sister who was bisexual like me and left-handed, and she was, see? So there was this whole arc of like, she was the one who introduced me and then she was the one who drove right back into the closet because it gave her financial status and money, you know? I was just mulling that over and reading about Almerstead Maupin and then this article in The Guardian came up and I'm gonna be quoting, um, this is about Armistead Maupin and the author is Patrick Gale, it's 1999. This is about Rock Hudson and Armistead Maupin. Rock Hudson and Armistead Maupin were friends and um, this article talks a lot about how Armistead Maupin had an ongoing relationship with Rock Hudson that went on as a friendship. They were lovers. And they also went to some of these places that I've been to. You know, I, don't, I haven't been to a glory hole, but kink of BDSM parties, uh-huh. 
supervising and watching people having sex while I give them direction. Uh-huh. You know, I've done a couple things and um, that other people may not have done just because I wanted to understand my sexuality and I was assertive, you know. And a lot of people may or may not be able to relate to that. So when they're talking about going to these glory holes, these alternative places, I'm like, sign me up. Where do I get the ticket, baby? I want to go. Yeah. Okay. So this is a quote from this article from uh, the uh, Guardian. The pair's later attempts were more successful. It wasn't a romance. They were becoming friends, and sex was Hudson's chief way of expressing intimacy. But the restrictions of fame and the closet would ultimately cause that friendship to founder. Quote, Quite a lot of famous people became curiously passive about the people they knew and accept. Their hangers-ons just called them and say, I'm in town, and their house has become a sort of hotel. And I could have done that continually and lived off the residual glamour, except that it wasn't very glamorous to be told that I would have to leave the house because Liz Taylor or Nancy Walker or somebody else he was playing bridge with was coming in the next day. As much as I liked rock, I was just part of the sexual sub-life. The encounters with Rock and the workings of the celebrity closet brought home to Armistead just how much he was growing in self-dignity as an out gay man. Having been a closet case himself only a few years earlier, he suddenly found himself cast in the role of a radical gay rights activist. Quote, I started feeling my star was on the rise, so it was insulting to have to hide. I was building an identity for myself that was about telling the truth. Quote, in effect, Armistead had become one of the first American celebrities to be gay for a living, and he sensed that for all the lip service he paid to the book, Rock was never going to come out. Quote. That's the end of that article. Well, that's the end of the quote in that article that I wanted to draw some attention to. Um, I hated being around people who had privilege and lied about it. I hated it. <laughs> And I still process, I'm, I can still find myself bitching at my sister sometimes because she took privilege to lie about her orientation because her husband was homophobic and they were finding insulting gays while I was sitting right there. And their mother was sitting right there. And she's the one who came out to me. <laughs> so um, tonight I'm going to love on Armistead Maupin. And I'm going to say thank you. And... It felt so good to see in writing someone's experience that I'd walk through and I couldn't find words for, you know. He's so good at that. He's such an amazing writer. And one thing he does, he provides space. There's a little space for silence where you can kind of mull on it and savor it, you know. He's real good at that. Real good at that. Well, thank you for coming to my little bisexual soiree tonight where I was walking down a path of where I knew I was by and Walla Walla. And now I come to a mature adult looking back going, you know, people change, don't they? And grow. Thanks for coming to the house on Valencia Street tonight to share in this space, yeah? I want you to know you're not alone. You're never going to be alone. Not the house on Valencia Street. Sometimes it's uh, whether you like it or not. <laughs> <laughs>